In your sleep all is forgotten. Welcome to Welcome to Storybrooke, and what the fuck is happening here? Oh my god, this show is so good now! No, seriously, like, seriously, what the hell? I was watching this episode, like, literally with bated breath waiting for it to become terrible, and that didn't happen! It was amazing all the way through. I mean, okay, so we don't normally do this, but I looked up who wrote this episode, because, you know... We should do that. That should be a thing we do. We'll do that when we do our Charmed podcast. I feel like we're too mean to this show on a regular basis to look up who the... We are mean to the degree that it would be an unkindness to credit the writers who we're attacking. Okay, that makes sense, I guess. But in this case, uh, we have a Buffy alum. Uh, Jane Espenson wrote this episode. Which, of course, when you told me that, I was like, well, of course it's good. She writes the best shit. Hmm. You might remember her from Buffy. Specifically, you might remember her from being the uh, ticket lady from the musical episode of Buffy. No, that's Marty Noxon. Oh, oh, okay. That's cool. I, I always assume, I, no offense to Marty Noxon, but I, I tend to assume creator cameos are Jane Espenson. Oh, that's funny. She also wrote Husbands, which I really enjoyed, mm. and uh, worked on Battlestar Galactica. Oh. So, you know, basically whenever I see Jane Espenson's name, I feel confident that I'm going to see something awesome. Yeah, she uh, and she's done writing on this show in the past. I believe she's an executive producer on this show. Mm. So, not whenever I see her name, but when I see her name in a pivotal role. Well, executive producer doesn't really mean anything. Right. All right, so we are talking about uh, Season 6, Episode 7, Heartless. And I have to say, this episode also starts off one of my favorite later season storylines, the curse that David and Mary Margaret fall under at the end of this episode, I think was really brilliant and really kind of revitalized their roles in the show. Yeah, I I kind of overlooked it when I was talking about how weirdly amazing this episode is, but it's a David and Mary Margaret episode. Right? Like... And I remembered watching it. I remembered this is the one with the woodsman when we were going in and I wasn't expecting it to be. Yeah, we talk sometimes about how David and Mary Margaret, their role is done. So it's weird that they keep being main characters. This plot line gives them something interesting to do. Finally, thank goodness. I'd also like to uh, give some credit to the director here, Ralph Hemecker. Heimecker? Hemecker, I would, I would guess. Hemecker. Because the cinematography in this episode is amazing. He does some really impressive camera stuff here. Yeah, it's genuinely a really beautiful episode. And okay, we don't need to credit her because we never stop talking about how amazing she is. But I also think one of the reasons this episode is so good is because they just let Lana Perea go. Oh yeah, she's like full force acting in this episode god this episode is such a great showcase for her so we should actually talk about the episode at some point okay let's get into it the episode opens with gently wafting curtains and it pulls in tight uh through the curtains to mary margaret in bed with david 
Mary Margaret and David asleep. Foreshadowing. Mm. Okay, so as much as I love this episode, I do find it kind of hilarious that Mary Margaret's basically wearing a snowsuit in bed and David's wearing a tank top. Yeah, well, Mary Margaret's wearing an old-fashioned long nightgown and David, yes, as you say. She's wearing an old-fashioned long nightgown with an overnight gown over it. Well, yeah, she has a shawl over it, which is weird, but necessary because she is teleported from her bed to the middle of the forest. In, in, a, in a move that appears to be a dream sequence, but is not. God, I, I just, I can't get over the cinematography here. The way each of these shots is framed, it helps to build the dreamlike atmosphere, which makes the reveal that it's not a dream that's uh, that much more powerful. Yeah, and you call it dreamlike, but also it's very fairy tale. So we're reminded that this has basically become a dom-com, a, a domestic comedy, mm-hmm. but the evil queen is back. There's real fairy tale wickedness again. I hate that I can't use the word wicked because Zelina. But, you know, real fairy tale evil witch queenness afoot. So, the evil queen has brought Mary Margaret to the woods, and I think one of the things that helps this feel ethereal is the fact that we don't get the teleportation cut or the teleportation effect. Yeah, there's no smoke around. There's no smoke around Mary Margaret. And when the evil queen appears, she doesn't teleport in. She just steps into frame in front of Mary Margaret. There's lots of low angles and just the lighting. God, I I just love, I love all these shots. There's a lot of backlighting to create silhouette effects. And this whole scene is blue washed, which has been really overused and I'm sick of, but I'm kind of okay with it here. Yeah, so the evil queen uh, has brought Snow to the woods to tell her a story about when when snow was 15 how her father got her a pony a miniature horse as the residents of pawnee would remind you which is not a pony it's the pony my parents wouldn't buy me because i already had too many ponies (laughs) the point of the story because the horse that her father got her was super loyal and smart and blah 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 and the evil queen's like you see you always get what you want Plus a little bit more. Well, the little bit more in this case was that her father had trained the horse to bow to her. Mm. Yeah, there are class dynamics at work here as well. Because this episode is great and cheesy and melodrama in the best way and also really smart. Mm. Although the evil queen really has no place to talk, you know, class dynamics wise. She does, though, because... Her mother was her mother was a queen, but her mother was a striver. Her mother was always trying to her mother was always trying to class climb. So she had to deal with the reality of that in a way that Snow White never did because her father didn't care. Mm. I and just her, think it's interesting that her mother was into, you know, upward mobility after becoming a queen because there's really sort of a ceiling on that sort of thing she was trying to break through the medieval ceiling i mean i guess empress is sort of the next logical step yeah no well the next step is to be queen of many kingdoms so or i guess after that the idea is you want to have your children become rulers of better kingdoms mm. yeah i guess there is always something further up yeah 
you want your child to be Mary, Queen of Scots, who at different points in her life had a legitimate claim to three different thrones. Although, had that work out for her? Yeah, that was that was where I was going with this. Mm. Her claim was better than Elizabeth's. God, I love this. The evil queen starts talking about what she wants, specifically Mary Margaret's heart. Because we are going back to basics this season. We really are. A lot of season one. And that's where it's good, right? Yeah. And she's like, I want your heart, and I want that little bit more. The part that will make it just a little bit better. Just the just the cherry on the sundae, which in this case is David's heart. Because as you will recall, David and Mary Margaret share a heart. Mm. That See, you didn't like that. I thought, number one, it was a super clever solution when it happened, and it enables this plot to happen. I love that David and Mary Margaret share a heart. They share a heart because back when Mary Margaret needed to cast the dark curse and needed to crush the heart of the thing she loved the most, she crushed David's heart, broke her own heart in half, and gave half to him so that the two of them could both live. That really bothered me at the time and a lot later. But it does sort of work in a fairy tale logic kind of way. It 100% works. They share a heart. It's beautiful. I like it in a way that I don't usually like David and Mary Margaret stuff. So Mary Margaret's like, you're not going to get our hearts. Regina cast that spell she cast on Henry at, uh, at the end of the Peter Pan story in season three. The heart protection spell, which you think she would cast on everyone all the time because of how much this comes up. Maybe it's draining. Maybe she can, and maybe it takes a tiny bit of her energy to maintain it. Mm. And the evil queen's like, oh no, no, no. And she presses a vial into Mary Margaret's hand. She tells her that she's going to give over her heart and David's heart willingly. And this vial is why. And then she teleports out of the woods, and that's when we realize it isn't a dream. She just brought Mary Margaret into the middle of the woods and left her there. She's Mary Margaret. She used to be a bandit queen. She'll get home fine. It's amazing. I hope she had bedroom slippers. Well, she sleeps in a shawl. I'm sure she has something on her feet as well. So we get the opening credits, and then we uh, and then we cut to the evil queen. Coming home to the farmhouse that she shares with her sister Zelina. And a baby. And a baby. And this is hilarious because she's wearing an evil queen dress, of course, and it is so out of place in this domestic farmhouse. Again, I think we talked about it a little bit last episode, but I love the dynamic that Zelina and the evil queen have built up in this series of episodes, the weird domestic evil thing. I, okay, it hits so many things that I love. I love stories about people who are, I love stories about people kind of cohabitating and building a life together outside of romantic relationships. I love stories about women who are enemies who become friends. And I love villains. So this is just like right there for me. And this week when we were watching it, I realized what I really, really want. What do you want? You know are you familiar with Amy Memberson's Pocket Princesses? I am. I mean, I know you are because, yeah. Because the book is in our house. Yes. Oh, no, no. There is there is no book of Pocket Princesses. Amy Memberson works for Disney. So there's some Disney princess comics that she has done that are... Basically the Pocket Princesses, but in an official capacity. 
right, authorized. Yeah, that are authorized. And she specifically does not sell the pocket princesses in any capacity because they are not authorized. Mm. Um, she's very clear about that. But I want pocket villains. I want a, I want a, I want a little comic about all the villains living in a house together. And I want Amy Memberson to do it in her adorable, like, style. I was going to say chibi style, but it's not quite what it is. Mm. God, that's a word I haven't heard in a very, very long time. Also, I know that you're familiar with the Pocket Princesses because we literally bought outfits based on one of her comics and are going to take pictures with them today. Yes, that that is an accurate statement. Also, I know that you know that, but I want them to know that. Right. So, Zelina's like, you were out late, what were you up to? And... The evil queen's like, well, I came up with a perfect plan to get Snow White and Prince Farming, which is just so perfect. So cute. So clever. And Zelina asks her if the Dark One is going to help her. Zelina's getting all jealous about the fact that Regina's going to go out there and bang Rumpelstiltskin. She's like, so... Are you working with Rumple now? And the evil queen's like, yeah, we're, there's a lot of give and take. He gives, I take, wink, wink. And Zelina's like, oh God, are you having sex with him? And she's like, no, no, because I know you tried to have sex with him one time and he turned you down and it just crushed you. So I wouldn't do that to you. And then the evil queen says that she has to get out of there before she's required to do any baby care. Also, she reminds us that Rumpel now has the Shears of Destiny. Okay, fine. The flashbacks in this episode are a, uh, I guess it's a midquill sort of. They're, yeah, they're a midquill. Well, I mean, saying that they're a midquill implies that you can't have flashbacks at any point in time. The show does operate the flashbacks and be at any point in time. You're only saying they're a midquill because it seemed like David and Mary Margaret's story was done. This is one of those prequels that establishes relationships that don't really work with the rest of the show. This is their first meeting, except it's not really. I was going to say, for a good example of this, you should watch, except this is a good example. I, I like this episode. But for a good example of this, you should watch the Bones episode, the end in the beginning, which in, in which we find out that despite the fact that we've just watched several seasons of Will They, Won't They?, Bones and Booth had already had sex, like, before the series even started. So, I should hate this. I should hate that they're, like, retconning, oh, before the moment where David and Mary Margaret had their meet-cute, they'd actually met before, but neither of them knew it. Yeah, which... But I don't. This also really does not work with established continuity. Well, I mean, it works with established continuity if you assume that they're both really, really, really dumb. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So this is after Snow White is on the run from the evil queen, but before she has become Snow the Bandit. Mm. So she's not, she hasn't figured out how to survive yet. She's still wandering around in tattered princess garb, trying to sell family jewels to corrupt men who are like, hey, aren't you the princess that the queen is hunting? I could get a lot more money by turning you in. She's selling some family heirlooms to a shifty dude for three coppers. I don't know how the economy of this country works, but... She says that the brooch that she's trying to sell is worth a hundred times that. But, number one, <laughs> Economics 101, it's only worth what someone will pay for it. Mm. And also, there's no way that guy has a hundred times that, so... Well, maybe it's like a, you know, 
nuts thing from Harry Potter. Knuts. Yeah? Where we never see anyone use them ever. Well, no, I mean, coppers are a... So, the phrase copper probably refers to a specific coin that is minted by the realm. Mm. So, it probably does have a standard value. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's like pennies. You don't see anyone actually paying them. Uh, Again, in Harry Potter, you never see anyone buy anything with nuts. It's like the cheapest things you buy with sickles. But you buy most stuff with galleons. You're such a nerd. I'm sorry, it's... She came up with a monetary system where there was one unit of payment that we never see anyone use. Well, as you pointed out, that's like pennies. It's not that weird. I guess. So, are they still... I guess they're still making new pennies. Yes, they still make new pennies. Hmm. Even though it costs more to make a penny than a single cent. That seems like a good use of time and resources. The move to eliminate the penny is actually very contentious. Because eliminating the penny will cause everyone to round up. So it will actually end up costing people quite a bit. Hmm. And I actually heard a conspiracy theory when the Sacagawea gold dollars came out. That it was part of a plan to get the penny eliminated by essentially moving the Overton window on currency. It's a very specific conspiracy theory. Well, if you think about it, cash registers only have a certain amount of slots, okay? And it's standardized. So when the gold dollar came out, there wasn't really a slot in the cash register for it. So it would make it seem more natural to eliminate the penny, and then cash registers would fit the the dollar coin. I think we should just start moving away from physical money. Well, we have. Haven't you heard? Millennials are killing cash. Oh, God. It's because we don't have any. So anyway, we cut from Snow definitely being found out by the man she's trying to sell her brooch to, to David on his farm. It's Peasant David, but without his terrible Peasant David wig. Let's let him have that. Yeah. He has his prince hair right now, but you know what? It's fine. Maybe he got his yearly haircut before this. uh... Yeah, sure. So, in the timeline, this must be right before Rumpelstiltskin went to him to ask him to pretend to be James. Yes. Okay. This is before that, before he's pretending to be James, but after Anna of Arendelle helped him defeat Little Bo Peep, the warlord. That is correct. Now, David is guarding his own flock, and he is terrible at it. He spent all night out looking for some sheep that got out. And when he finally found them, they had died of exposure. Yeah, not not great shepherding there, dude. And, yeah. Also, he took the sheepdog to track them. And he talks about how he's the best tracking dog they have. You know what else would be good? Good fences. We see that the sheep are in a fence. How do they get out, David? David is a terrible shepherd. So... His mom is like, look, we have basically no money, and for some reason I'm not going to sell the half-dozen magical artifacts I have. Why don't we just sell our crappy little farm? Well, don't forget, all of her magical artifacts are completely useless because they only do very specific things, like tell you what the assigned-at-birth gender of your first child is going to be. I mean, that's really important to royalty, right? Oh my god, you're right. That must be why it exists. They must have used it on, like, women they were thinking about marrying. Oh my god. I'm just saying, if Henry VIII had had that, it would have saved a lot of drama. Huh. It's really dark. Okay. 
What about, well, and I guess the ring that makes you find your true love is... I mean, that's pretty useful. I mean, like, emotionally. <laughs> but this is fake medieval times. Your true love is really a lot less important than a ring that lets you, I don't know, find your sheep. Mm. Oh, yeah. So they're thinking about selling the farm. We cut back to Mary Margaret Snow, who is talking to Blue. Hey, Blue's in this episode. So Blue was with... Did we know that Blue was with Snow when she was on the run? I don't remember knowing that. I think so. I know she helped her out with the campaign later when Snow was being, like... Right, I remember that. And I know she had some interactions with Blue earlier in life. Okay, so Blue is with Snow on the run. And it's funny because we have talked before about how magical Blue is and how that makes her pretty evil for not just fixing everything, but... I think this episode is trying to walk that back because Blue says a lot of times that she can't do a lot of things. Yeah, it, it, it's strange because, uh, as we know, Blue does her best work off screen and we see her, we don't actually, we anti-see her do a lot of very powerful stuff that would indicate that she's a high-level magic user. But when she's on screen, she doesn't really seem to have much in the way of power. I feel like this episode might have even been trying to walk back how powerful they made her because of the problem we discussed. Although, later we'll see her kicking the ass of a... What is basically the show's ultimate big bad. You mean in later episodes? In later episodes this season. Wow. Yeah, we're on the last real season of Once Upon a Time. Yeah, I was going to say penultimate because there's another season after this. but Last I... real season. Yeah, but I don't think the uh, I, I don't think the big bad of the postscript season counts as the ultimate big bad. No, although we are gonna I mean we are gonna cover season seven, but anyway, uh, Blue's like, why did you sell that priceless family heirloom? And Mary Market's like, I don't know about you, but I need to eat. And then they're interrupted by a dude throwing an axe at them. Yeah, the woodsman. The woodsman is freaking throwing axes at them. So. Blue proves to be not super useful in this situation. Yeah, she just flies in his face to distract him. I feel like she should have been able to cast a spell there. Yeah, like, could have turned him into a puppet, or a dog, or a chair. Nope. Nope, she just distracts him. She distracts him so that Snow has a chance to throw one of the axes back at him. Non-fatally. Non-fatally, just causing him to drop his own axe so that Blue can magically make herself human-sized and pick up that axe. And now it's one huntsman versus two armed women. So he turns tail and runs. Man, the fairy outfits look real weird when they're standing next to people who are just wearing regular medieval clothes. Yeah, also the fairy outfits look really weird when they're not tiny and... Glowing? Glowing. Like when they have the glow effect behind them, they're slightly less weird. But the jellyfish skirts, full size with, like, nothing to distract you, it's... The flat jellyfish rose skirt dresses. Yeah, and it's... And and I feel like the idea was that it would make them look more like they were flying when they put the light behind them. Hmm. So, okay, fine. I, I get I get what you're going for there, but... Oh, man. Maybe have them change into different outfits when they become people size. There you go! How hard is that? Make it, turn it into like a little Tinkerbell skirt where it's like body fitting and made out of leaves. Mm. Except blue in this case. Or have it be a full skirt. 
Wait a second, we've seen the blue fairy magically paralyze people. That's how they got the evil queen that one time. No, no, they had to use, they used squidding to do that. No, no, she, she did the magic force field thing. Oh, I thought the blue fairy was wielding the squid ink, but that it was squid ink. No. You're sure? I am sure. Okay. If you're wrong, they're going to tell us. That That's fine. If I'm wrong, feel free to tell us. But no, remember, because that's why they couldn't keep her indefinitely, because the blue fairy could only suppress her power for so long. Maybe it took a while for the blue fairy to come into her power, and this is before that? But this is definitely post her depowering tank. And banishing her to Neverland. That is true. That's... What are your powers, Blue? There's a Gandalf over here. Yeah. Oh, I could have done that light thing any time I felt like it, but eh. So, now that the woodsman has run away, Snow White reveals that she thinks she has enough money now. She's gonna go hire a boat and get the fuck out of here. She's gonna go to Longbourn. I was so excited, y'all. She's going to go marry Mr. Darcy? Is she? I feel like she might be one of the unfortunates Mr. Darcy helps to impress uh, Elizabeth. Even better. Even better. So the Blue Fairy's like, you can't just abandon your kingdom. And Mary Market's like, I'm just trying not to die. Also, like, why not? Why not? So, David's going to pull a Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk, except with the farm instead of a cow. I was actually really thinking how this is very much the setup of Into the Woods, where just two people in this case, but everyone is going into the woods for their own reason, and then they will all meet up. Hmm. So, except Longbourn. This is Into the Longbourn. David is going to head to Longbourn to... Wait, what is his plan? He's going to sell the farm. Okay, he's going to go to Longbourn because that's where the escrow officers are. And so... It makes sense because most of our property law here in America derives from English common law, which is why it makes so little sense because American law has different priorities than British law, but we're trying to like wield British property laws into fit with American ideals. So like the main American idea is the possibility of alienation of property. And in England, that's like the opposite of what you want. And also I do have to say, property law in school was like my forte and it totally came from reading a lot of jane austen and therefore understanding byzantine property rules also dracula i'm assuming not as much really but it, uh, but dracula is all about property buying property it is it is that's true but it's about Dra it's about dracula trying to become the first urban vampire yeah dracula is like about trying to create anne rice he wants to be part of society. He doesn't want to be living out in the Balkans eating peasants all the time. Did, did you want to say part of our world? I, I didn't, but I'm glad that was there. Okay. It's funny because Pride and Prejudice helped me understand what a fee entail was. And learning about property law helped me understand what was happening in Pride and Prejudice. All right, so does David have, like, a deed to the farm he's carrying with him? Because it seems like not a great idea to be like, hey, I've got a farm, you want to buy it? Yeah, probably. Yeah, he probably has a deed. I don't know how fake medieval property law works. Mm, yeah, 
it's probably a very uh, specific subset of property law. Yes, fake medieval property law. So we go from him going into the woods to modern day Storybrooke. Everyone's gathered around the vial the evil queen gave Mary Margaret, and they're trying to figure out what to do because she said, if, because as she told Mary Margaret, if Mary Margaret and David don't hand over their collective heart in the next 12 hours, she's going to use this on the people of Storybrooke. So David and Mary Margaret think that they're safe because they are in Emma's death vision. And Emma's like, no, no, no. The Oracle told me anything can change. You two can definitely die before my death vision comes to pass. The only thing that can't be changed is my death. Okay, I'm sorry. We saw every scene with her in the Oracle and that was definitely not said. I feel like this is one of those soft retcon things that they do. Like when they established that no one can die in the land of untold stories and acted like it was just something they had established and that we all knew ahead of time. Yeah, or this could just be Emma being fatalistic. Mm. I feel like that's more what it is. Because the Oracle definitely did not tell her that. No, she definitely did not. So Regina is a woman of action and she just grabs the vial and is like, well, let's see what it is. And she pours it on a nearby tree, which instantly dies. In an effect which both looks fake and looks cool. Oh yeah, it's a really cool, really fake looking effect. And she says, oh hey, it's not a potion. It's the fucking waters from hell. It's the waters from the river of souls. The ones that destroy your soul instantly and turned Dorothy's Aunt M into goo. Yep, she says that Rumpelstiltskin brought it back from the underworld, so the evil queen must be working with Rumpelstiltskin. Fair. Also, I want to point out that in Emma's vision, David and Mary Margaret were there, but the rest of Storybrooke wasn't, which kind of indicates that David and Mary Margaret aren't going to take the deal. Wow, good point. Wow. Damn. So David and Mary Margaret are walking around the town, looking at all of the various people who are going to die. And then Mary Margaret is like doing backflips to stay contrary no matter what. She's like... She's like, what if what we do is what leads to Emma's death? We need to do nothing. But also, we need to do everything. We can't give up. And also, everything we do is pointless. It's great because David's not talking, so the only one Mary Margaret has to contradict is herself. Mary Margaret doesn't know yet what position David is going to take, so she has to take all positions so that she can stay contrary to him. We have to sacrifice ourselves for the town, except that might make Emma die for some reason, so... I guess maybe we shouldn't, or should we? And David's like, I'm not talking. (laughs) We cut to a flashback where David is walking with his dog. We have not seen this dog before, right? No. This This dog is is only in this episode. Correct. It's such a cute dog, though. It is a super cute dog. It's a mutt, right? Yeah, I I don't think it's a, yeah, I don't think it's a purebred. Like, it looks like it has some collie in it, but the head is definitely not a collie head. Yes. It's so cute, though. The dog comes up to him with a battered tin cup in his mouth and then runs off so that David has to follow him. And it leads him to a cart, a peddler's cart, one would think. Yeah, the dog is very anxious to get into the cart and then a man appears. David has no stranger danger here. Well, he's a healthy 20-something white man, so he's never had to deal with the fact that there are a lot of scary people out there. Yeah. David's used to being stronger than most people he meets, and when he's not... People from other realms come and teach him how to sword fight so that he can kill them. Point. 
so the guy's like hey dude what are you what are you doing around my uh my merchant cart that's what it is a merchant cart and david's like oh my dog found this cup and he's a really good tracker so he brought me to where the cup was here's your cup and the guy's like hmm dog's a good tracker you look healthy and dumb you look healthy and dumb you want to hang out with me the peddler tells david that he is also going to longbourn and they should go together for safety and david is like Okay, cool, and he hops up front in the front of the cart while the peddler goes to the back of the cart, reveals that it is actually a kidnapping-based cart. Yeah, it's, like, filled with chains on the inside, and also, in case you don't get it, the camera zooms in on the huntsman's mask so that we know that this is the huntsman. Woodsman. The woodsman, sorry. The huntsman is... The huntsman is Graham. Hey, we mentioned Graham again! What? So, we should mention, because we didn't talk before, about what the woodsman's mask looks like. It's hella dumb. It's so dumb. It's got, like, bug eyes with, like, shutter... Like, Kanye West glasses. Remember those glasses? Yeah, uh It's like that, but bug eyes yeah the eyes are like these big protruding bubbles but then they have like bars of steel across them he can't possibly have good visibility in that mask no and we're saying mask but it's a cowl it only covers the cowl part of his face and it's entirely made out of metal it seems like its sole purpose is to make it so he can't see anything i mean its sole purpose is to be so odd looking that it's distinctive but also no, that's its sole purpose. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's bad news bears for Snow and probably for David. And then we cut to Snow and Blue. Blue is still human-sized so that they can have a conversation without special effects. So, Blue is talking about how Snow should start up a rebellion and she'd have the fairies who could help her. Even and- though even though the whole point of this episode seems to be to show that the fairies can't actually do anything useful, which we know is not true. But yeah, remember in season one when the fairies had that cloud of knockout dust that they used on that entire castle? Oh, yeah. Where was the fucking knockout dust, Blue, when that guy was throwing axes at her? I, uh, uh, but Blue tells Mary Margaret that there's a fairy saying, because Mary Margaret's like, you, you say that, but it's just me here. I'm just on my own trying to survive. And Blue says, there's an old fairy saying, if someone believes in you, you're never alone. Yes? What? Why are you staring at me like that? You seem like you had something to say. Oh, um. Hey, Tina, you look like you've got something to say. Do you? I was going to try to work in a reference to Snow White building a princess rebellion. Because She-Ra is amazing. Ah, uh, yeah, you've been watching She-Ra. Yes, but I, I was going to try to work it in naturally. But since you're just staring at me, I will say, Snow White needs to go build a princess rebellion. She does. Oh, God. Wouldn't that be a much cooler... I mean, also, Brickett Ralph, we see the Disney princesses can do cool stuff when they work together. Yeah, yeah. Although, to be fair, that's... I mean, it's not specifically what she's doing, but she is going to a different kingdom. Uh, she says she's going to one of their ally kingdoms to look for aid. Okay, so she is trying to build a rebellion just in a smart way. But she's not doing it in the way Blue wants her to do it. Blue's hey, like, is Snow White attracted to people who get angry at you when you don't do things specifically their way and then talk at you until you're not a werewolf? Oh, God. Are you saying Blue's setting some sort of 
Freudian precedent in her brain. That is 100% exactly what I am saying. Ugh. Also, since you mentioned how cool the Wreck-It Ralph princesses are, I have to say I heard a review of Wreck-It Ralph where someone was complaining that the internet in Wreck-It Ralph could have been like this magical place where there could have been anything, they could have made anything, and instead it was all branded properties. And it was like, are you unfamiliar with the internet? Seriously. Like, it was a perfect recreation of how the internet feels. I mean, most of the internet is just taking one intellectual property and smooshing it together with a different intellectual property. Yeah, it's all memes, Disney quizzes, and Cats mean and people. Pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah well. that too. <laughs> so, She-Ra and Wreck-It Ralph aside, uh, Mary Margaret has hopped on the giving up train, despite Blue shrieking at her that... Love is the most powerful magic. Which actually is a good reminder because Snow White was not on the love train before she met David. She did not believe in the power of love. Yeah. And Snow has a pretty good, like, takedown of this where she's like, really? Because my mom loved my dad and she died. And my dad loved Regina and Regina killed him. So it seems like love doesn't really do much to protect you from being killed. Okay, I don't know if this is the devastating takedown that Snow White thinks it is. Because her dad did not love Regina. He child married her so he could have someone to take care of his daughter. And then he ignored her and took care of his daughter himself. Yeah, like... To say that love isn't real because Regina did not love your father is a gross misunderstanding of what a terrible human being Snow's father was. Well, I think the argument is more that love is not a more powerful magic than, say, magic. I mean, that is true. I just think that Snow White is a fool if she thinks her dad loved Regina. Yes. But, I mean... But it's the kind of foolish thing a child would believe about their parents, so I'm I'm fine with it. Yeah. (laughs) It's... It's so great because, I mean, Blue is wrong. Love is not more powerful than magic. Love helps you get around certain kinds of magic. But, like, love isn't going to stop a fireball from burning off your face. So Blue's like, okay, fine. Fuck you. Go be in Pride and Prejudice. Okay, fine. Go build a rebellion out of people in other powerful kingdoms that have resources that we don't and then come back and take back your throne instead of staying here and trying to build a resistance in the woods with no resources. Although, if Blue was serious about the fairies helping her, they could have just knocked out everyone in the castle right off the bat. We saw them do it. Or they could have given Snow shelter instead of making her wander around the woods. Yeah, She could have lived in their weird flower kingdom. Honestly, since we've seen the fairies in their weird flower kingdom, why is Blue wandering around? Is there some sort of Blue backstory where she was temporarily thrown out of the fairy guild? Maybe that's why she doesn't have magic this episode. I don't know. She shrinks and she grows, which... Yeah, well, that's... So... And she got mad at Tink for growing without permission okay so now i'm going to theorize that the ability to shrink and grow is inherent in fairies as opposed to most of the other things they do that requires fairy dust Mm. so because she is exiled blue is cut off from fairy dust but she still has her inherent powers i don't know she wait i'm building a backstory for blue because we but we know she's back in charge of the fairies when the nova stuff goes down right so just maybe Maybe after the Tink stuff, they were like, you were harsh on Tink for no reason, and it was very bad, and look what happened with Regina, that was partly your fault, so maybe they made her take a sabbatical. Well, given what happened with the Black Fairy, I 
think the blue fairies already should already be in hot water if there were any fairy powers higher than her. Yeah, good point. I mean, Blue has a history of being a very bad leader of fairies. Well, I was just going to say, maybe Tink was really popular and the other fairies, like, voted her off the island. Oof, that does not speak well for Halo Lurgat. So, uh, we go from Blue being like, fine, fuck you, good luck in Pride and Prejudice land, to the Storybrook crew telling Belle that it looks like Rumpel's evil again, and Belle's like, not, not even, I, uh, yeah, okay, fine. Although, they're not there to blame Belle. They're there because Belle is the researcher, and they want her to find a way to neutralize the water from the River of Souls. And she's like, yeah, I read every single book in my library, and there's not a way. Sorry, fam. Yeah, I'm sure Go Dog Go was really useful in trying to figure out, is it a mystical library, or isn't it? I mean... I think it's probably both. So... It's like Sunnydale's library, where you have actual books you would need in high school and then demonographies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, it just sent me back to Gingerbread, where Joyce Summers is like, okay, but why does the school have such a large occult section? And Giles is like, a well-rounded student. And she's like, no, no. Yeah, yeah. So Bella leaves to do some more research, even though she's... She said she read all of her books and there's nothing about counteracting Hellwater, but... I think she's tired of being around these people. She's pregnant. There's no way she can stand David and Mary Margaret for too long. And as she leaves, Blue comes in to say that she also has no answers. Thanks, Blue. Well, they already paid for her to be in this episode. She may as well show up. She's like, I don't have any answers. And then when everyone looks downcast, except for the answer I might have. Yes, there might be a way to just, there might be a way to imprison the evil queen. And it involves finding a sapling. You mean a little tree? A baby tree. Yeah. Blue says they need a sapling and David's like, a baby tree? Like, we don't know what a sapling is. It's really weird. And then they keep, do they keep calling it a baby tree or did we just do that because that's a really weird thing for David to have said? I'm pretty sure they keep doing it in the episode. We certainly kept doing it while watching the episode. You mean a baby tree? <laughs> but it's a sapling created by the spark of first true love. And... It also got brought over in all of the curses, I guess. Yeah, and... Yeah, and Hook's like, wait, how come we haven't used this before? Do we have one? And that's when Blue tells him, like, we didn't think so, but a lot of shit came over with the curses, so let's go look. Yeah, and there's a spell that can find it, but the problem is... And Emma's like, a locator spell? And Blue's like, no, no, it's different. It's a very visible spell to find it it'll involve me shooting a like beam of magic up in the sky and everyone will see it which means all of the bad guys will see it and instantly know what we're doing yeah it'll be like when ang woke up and then all of a sudden zuko knew where to find him because there was a giant beam of light that went up into the sky oh that was back before that was a cliche yeah yeah before the sky beam was a cliche which i don't uh, the thing is i really like the sky beam in principle but it got so overused well in avatar the last airbender the sky beam is important because as i said it's what put zuko on their tail um okay so their solution by the way is going to be to distract the evil queen which i think is a giant mistake 
I think their solution should have been to have people strategically placed all around town so that when the sky beam went up, there was somebody nearby. Oh, I thought you were going to say would be to have people all over town launching fake sky beams. That also would have been a better plan. Unless the sky beam has some sort of magical call to it that the evil queen as a magic using character can Uh, respond to. Probably. And Rumpelstiltskin. Yes. And Selena. But Rumpelstiltskin's got his own baby drama going on, so I don't think we're really worried about him at this point. Yeah. I mean, he seems like more of a passive participant in the evil doings. This season. Because he's preparing for the massive evil doings that will come when his son is born. So they need a plan to distract the evil queen, Zelina, and Rumpelstiltskin. And... Regina has an idea. Because she is a messy bench who loves drama. Yes. She's like, okay, so I don't like talking about this, but back when I was the evil queen... I kind of wanted to doink Stiltskin, and everyone around the table's like, ugh, gross. Okay, honestly, the face Emma makes when she goes, Regina, oh my god, is amazing. And she's like, I know, I know, shut up. And it's so great. We pan across everyone's horrified faces when she says doink Stiltskin." And we finish on Henry. Who's just like, nope, left my body, left my body. Not here. But she has an idea that might set the evil queen and Selena against each other in a way that would distract Rumpelstiltskin. Now, to be clear, what's going on is that Regina knows that now that the evil part of her is separated from the good part of her, the evil part of her is definitely banging Rumpel. (laughs) It's great. She's like, wait, I'm all of the restraint. Oh, they are doing it like 24-7. So she sends Zelina a note where a note via bird, which is how she does. It is how she does. That's, via a crow puppet. Oh, yeah. I mean, a crow, but it's really clearly a puppet. Ah, you can buy me at the Discovery Zone. Ah. <laughs> but the crow drops off a note that says, "Hey Zelina, it's me, your sister, the evil queen one, not the Regina one. You should come to Gold Shop for a big surprise." Yeah, but it's written in the Queen's calligraphy, so it's definitely the Queen. The Queen has some third-grader-ass calligraphy. Yeah, well. Lots of loops. Yes. So Zelina shows up to Gold Shop, and the Evil Queen and Gold are just banging right in the back room. Okay, here's the thing. When Regina had that note sent to Zelina, she didn't do anything to make sure that... Rumple and the evil queen would be getting it on, which means she actually did just know that they were doing it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And she was right. <laughs> it's great because Rumple and the evil queen are having sex in the back room and he's like, so should we get a bed or... And then Selena comes in. She's like, you already have a bed. A bed of lies. She is so extra. Oh my God. So she tries to storm out of the shop, but... You can teleport. Well, storming is more dramatic, usually, unless you're the evil queen. Because she uses her teleporting hand gestures as a, like, what? Several times throughout the course of this episode. Yeah, she, like, 
her teleporting hands are a mic drop. It's amazing. And she teleports in front of Zelina and is like, can you calm down, please? I just didn't tell you about this because I know that you're super dramatic about everything and I didn't want you to throw a giant temper tantrum just because I'm balls deep in that dude you used to like. Yeah, Zelina insists that she's not jealous and the evil queen points out that her neck is turning green. She can't hide when she's jealous. She has a thing that clearly shows she's jealous. Although, in a twist, Zelina does not seem jealous of the fact that Regina is having sex with Rumple. She seems jealous of the fact that Rumple is monopolizing the evil queen's time when the two of them were going to be like badass sisters who ruled Storybrooke. She's mad that the evil queen is letting a dude come between them because there were supposed to be no secrets between them and now there's a third party in there. Yeah, and then she says the really weird line that now he's riding your handlebars and I'm just in the sidecar. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a... Okay, so first of all, for, like, let's, let's unpack this bizarre metaphor that Zelina comes up with. Okay, typically when, I'm assuming it's a motorcycle because there's a sidecar. But you can't ride the handlebars on a motorcycle. Yeah, you ride the handlebars on a bike, but bikes don't have sidecars. Motorcycles have sidebars, but you don't ride the handles of a motorcycle. No, you sit behind the person. Also, regardless of what type of vehicle this is, I feel like the sidecar is preferable to the handlebars. Yeah, like the sidecar's its own thing, it, and it's more comfortable, and... And it's designed for you to be there. Yeah. Also, I, I just, I, I can't... I, there's there's nothing there's there's no logic underlying this metaphor so I think it's we're better off if we just move on but I had to linger over it for at least a couple of minutes. It's such a weird thing to say. <laughs> but Rumple tells her to calm down, which, which she... has always worked in the history of telling angry people to calm down. Seriously, but he brings up the note and the evil queen's like, I didn't write this note and. Zelina's like, of course you did. It's your handwriting. And the evil queen's like, are you stupid? Like, who out there has my handwriting and doesn't want us to be buddy buddies? As much as I love this scene, it all breaks down really fast, which means that the plan to disrupt, which means that the plan to distract these three was not well thought out. It was not. So, Blue stands in the docks and shoots out the weird light beam which honest to god was so subtle they probably could have done nothing and they wouldn't have noticed it mm. yeah that's probably true which actually does add to the idea that it's magically calling to people who are magic users mm. so uh hook and emma are going to clear out regina's vault regina has removed the blood magic because it's basically pointless at this point everyone they're fighting is related to her yeah yeah theoretically she's placed other protections on it but she says she removed the blood magic from the locks so that implies that there are other locks presumably both physical and magical yeah but she still wants emma and hook to clear it out because there's too much valuable stuff in there for the evil queen also she doesn't say this, but the evil queen thinks like her, so she's always going to be on the same wavelength she is and be able to get through any defenses she casts. She really should have had Emma do blood magic. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
So while Hook and Emma are doing that, David and Mary Margaret are going to follow the light and find the magic sapling. Mm. Back in the flashback, uh, David and the very, very, very not evil uh, peddler are having some bro time, drinking wine that's totally not drugged. That's why the guy tossed David his own separate wineskin. Yep. Well, they also have a really cute dog with them. They do have a really cute dog with them. So this is like some fast acting sleeping potion, y'all, because David goes down immediately after drinking the wine and the peddler is like, yeah, that's why you don't take wine from strangers. I taught you an important lesson. I feel like we're even because I roofied you and you're giving me your dog. So we're even you got a free roofie. I get a free dog. Yeah. So. Is, is this robbery or burglary? Burglary is when, yeah, robbery is when you take it from a person by force. Burglary is when you break into a location and steal stuff. He's not really taking it by force, though. Knocking someone unconscious with a drug is force. Yeah. Point. Yes. So he's just leaving David's roofied body in the middle of the woods as he takes off with the dog. See, David, this is why you don't follow bearded strangers into the woods. I mean, I guess it's an important lesson that we have to learn sometime, even though David learned it a little late. Except he didn't. This is canonically the first time we've seen him follow a bearded stranger in the woods, and he learned nothing from it because he keeps doing it. He knew he could take Hook. Okay, and it, it it's only stabbed him in the back half the time. It stabbed him in the back here and when, uh, and when he did it with King Arthur. Yeah. Uh, but when he did it with Lancelot, it was cool. And when he did it with Hook, it was cool. Yes. So he has a 50% rate. Success rate. You know, sometimes it's worth it. Look, honestly, I I get the point that you're making. That if the first time you follow a bearded man with eyeliner into the woods, if you get roofied, maybe it's not something you should keep doing in the future. I get the point that you're making, but... Yeah, no, as a person who has dated men, the amount of risk that you take on to go on a date is kind of insane. Yeah, yeah. After he finds Mary Margaret, he probably should have stopped following dudes into the woods. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, she seems cool with it, and if that's their relationship, whatever, but it keeps on going bad for him. Yeah, maybe the amount, maybe his... Maybe his risk-reward analysis should have been readjusted when he got with Mary Margaret. Speaking of Mary Margaret... Speaking of Mary Margaret... She's in another part of the woods when she hears a noise and picks up a rock to destroy whatever's making the noise, but then she puts the rock down because she sees it's an adorable puppy. Yes, he's... he's I'm sorry, he's the wood cutter, and he has used David's dog to successfully track down Mary Margaret. I kind of love there's a reference to him normally hunting werewolves. Yeah, I like that. Um, it makes a lot of sense, and it makes him not... It, it, it makes a lot of sense, and also it makes the woodcutter from Little Red Riding Hood be the same woodcutter who chases Snow White in the Snow White story. So it's a mashup, which we haven't gotten in so, so long. Although it was a huntsman in Snow White, but... You know, whatever. Yeah. He's basically taking Graham's role here. Yeah, it's true. Oh, yeah, I forgot we already had Graham. 
Even though we've mentioned him once this episode. And he was... Huh. It's weird how wolves and huntsmen slash woodcutters tend to, like, go together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird thing. I, I remember that he was the huntsman because uh, Chris Hemsworth was the huntsman in the Kristen Stewart uh, Snow White movie. Yes. Which loops into the weird uh, Once Upon a Time Marvel thing because, you know, Bucky Barnes was the Mad Hatter. Well, I mean, everyone has been in Once Upon a Time and everyone is part of the Marvel Universe, so I guess it's bound to happen. Yeah. So he captures Snow White and he's like, look, I normally hunt werewolves. This is super easy for me. Yes. Then we cut to the present where David and Mary Margaret are wandering around looking for the sapling and reminiscing about their past together. Okay, I really like this bit because it calls back to in season one when they found Catherine's heart. Yeah, they're in the same spot where they found each... Yes, they're in the same spot where they found the heart. And it's it's the same thing that happened when they found the heart. They're talking about this. This is the place where uh, Mary Margaret found David after he woke up out of his coma, uh, which was why Regina had planted the fake Catherine's heart here. Yes. Uh, to frame Mary Margaret. Yes. And it's the same thing here where there's a false bottom... Because, remember, she had a uh, hole where she had hid the heart that was covered by a false bottom that Ruby found using her secret werewolf powers. And this time, Regina's like, oh, I know the evil queen, and I guess the evil queen hid the sapling this time, maybe. Yeah, I, I guess, but... So she yoinks one of the, uh, she mystically yoinks one of the dwarves' pickaxes. And she hits the ground to find the hatch. And she... Maybe it's just because this is from the makers of Lost, and they love hatches. There are a lot of hatches. I sort of love the casual way she's standing with that pickaxe after she finds the secret door. She's like, yeah, I found a secret door. MBD. It's this very casual lean. It looks great. So instead of like... Climbing down into the hole? Regina just bamps them down. Yeah, she teleports them down into the hole. She doesn't do the teleport out thing, though. She does this sort of weird sweeping motion above her head. I wonder if it's because she's carrying multiple people. I think so. So, Also, she needed to do it one-handed so she could keep leaning on the axe. (laughs) Emma and Hook are in Regina's vault, and they're packing everything up. Uh, And Hook notices that Emma's hand is still shaking really badly because she's stressed out by, you know, her impending death and her parents and... And Hook tells her everything's going to be okay. They're going to find the little baby tree. Ugh. You're right. They did keep saying baby tree. And he says little baby tree. Jeez. I don't know, Hook. I wouldn't put all of my hope on David and Mary Margaret finding a baby anything. <laughs> Oof. Emma's understandably nervous. And Hook's like, hey, hey, shut up. I want to tell you a story. And he opens the storybook. Again, we are going real season one here. Up to and including the terrible illustrations. This is back when they super photoshopped them so you weren't supposed to be able to tell that they were The just... actors who were already in the show, except that instead of drawing new images, they put a Photoshop filter on everything. And then just cranked it up to the maximum, you know, sketch effect. Yeah. Actually, I find this scene really sweet because Hook is going through the storybook and he's telling Emma the story of her parents, which she already knows. He knows she knows it. And he 
reminds her about how she traveled back in time to make them fall in love, back to the future style. Actually, she traveled back in time, fucked up them meeting, but they still fell in love anyway because of how powerful their love is. Yes. Even though she almost got Mary Margaret executed. Eh, it's pretty standard once upon a time fair. It's pretty standard time travel fair, actually. Yeah. I mean, this scene is really sweet, and I really do like it, but what Hook is really reminding Emma of is the fact that she and her parents are charmings, which means that they don't have to make sacrifices. Everything's just going to work out for them. I mean, he basically says, like, look, everything always works out for your parents, so you really don't have to worry about them. Yeah. We cut to David in the past asleep in the woods and being woken by Willoughby. So Willoughby's the dog, by the way. I don't Willoughby, you're right. We haven't said the name of the dog. The dog is Willoughby. And I just want to point out that even though David did get drugged in the woods, he didn't get killed and he got his dog back. Like, it's not great for Snow White right now, but everything kind of did work out okay for David. Yeah, I mean, normally when you get roofied, bad things follow. He just kind of had a power nap and then got up again. Yeah, nothing bad happened to him physically and he didn't get robbed. But the dog is not pleased with the idea of Snow White being executed. So the dog leads David back to the peddler van, which, as we said, is actually a kidnapping van. Now, David's trying to break... uh, He can hear Mary Margaret, but he can't see her. He's trying to break her out of the kidnapping van with a rock. And she's telling him to run because if the woodcutter comes back, he will definitely kill David this time. She doesn't know that David's been taught how to fight by Anna of Arendelle. You said that sarcastically. Anna of Arendelle is an awesome soldier. Uh, yeah, because she has super strength. Yeah. I'm just saying, if you're fighting with super strength, you're going to be using different fighting techniques than someone who does not have super strength. That's fair. That's fair. Like, David's going to be pulling all of his punches so he doesn't end up wrist deep in someone's sternum, except he doesn't have super strength. He doesn't have to worry about being wrist deep in someone's sternum. I don't know why, but that's like a really horrifying visual. No. In the present, David, Mary Margaret, and Regina are down in the hole, the cave, and they find the magical sapling, which they just pull, like, right out of the ground. So, that's dead. Right? Like, they don't act like it's dead, but they just yank it right out of the ground. And when they do, they get, and when they do, we get treated to a flashback sequence where we see their entire story unfold over, you know, the first few seasons. It's a really well-done montage of all of their, like, top moments as a couple. It's weird to see what Snow White looked like back before she pissed off whoever she pissed off in hair, makeup, and costuming. Yeah, visually, Jennifer Goodwin is jumping around a lot, appearance-wise. And here's the thing, she's not... Nothing has changed about her except whoever is doing her hair and makeup. Yeah. Honestly, it's a pretty... It's not like she aged or put on weight or lost a lot of weight. She's exactly the same person. It's just someone who hates her is doing her hair now. Honestly, this would be a really good way to demonstrate to new makeup artists how makeup can make or break an actor. Yeah. I mean, I think they know. But new ones, new ones. Okay, yeah. Because she goes all over the visual spectrum with the same base face. Basic. Base. Uh, I didn't want to say. Face. You didn't want to say basic because you didn't want to be like basic. You just yeah. meant. Yeah, no, I gotcha. She has the same face the whole time. It's just her appearance dramatically changes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Merit Marcus like, that's fucking it? It just shows you a montage of your true love moments? What the fuck is that supposed to do? She's like, I already know I love you. And David's like, yeah, I know I love you. That's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. And and Regina's like, yeah, that's not... Yeah, okay, like... Regina's like, okay, stop, let's go fight. Regina wants to beat someone up. And the evil queen bams in and she's like, yeah, I saw the thing. You... What, 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 what are you thinking? And then, oh my goodness, the most amazing scene... The evil queen teleports the sapling into her own hand, and Snow White's like, it won't work for you because you don't have true love. Which, number one, she does have true love. His name is Daniel, and you got him killed. That's what we're all doing here, Snow White! And then she had another one, who was Robin, who Zelina got killed. Yeah. Who who are we laying the blame on that? Yeah, it's pathetic. Well, I mean, it's Hades' fault. I don't like blaming... The girlfriend yeah. for the terrible thing that the guy did. And Zelina didn't directly lead to his death the way Snow White directly led to Daniel's death. Or the way Zelina directly led to Neil's death, which that doesn't get brought up much anymore. Yeah. But the evil queen is like, oh no, I can't use it. What will I do? And then she just snaps it back <laughs> in half. Then there's this glorious thing where she's play acting. She's like, oh no, maybe I can like put it back together oh no it's oh, gone turn it's... to dust in my hands whoops i love her so much i mean to be fair i don't think she needed to do this how are they going to use this against her who knows who knows and then she quotes and then she quotes dylan thomas she's like go go live your life for the next 24 hours before i pour Poison into the water supply. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. See you tomorrow. Bye. I love her so much here. And the thing is, she's... I I don't want to say she's chewing the scenery. She's acting really hard, but it's not in a pantomime way. Honestly, it looks like she's just having the best time. And it makes you want to just have the best time with her. Yeah. But there, there's about three hours left at this point. Oh, on the timer before they have to either give up their hearts or she's going to pour all the water into the water supply. I assume that was her plan, right? Yeah, she's she, going full Joker here. She doesn't actually say that that's what she's going to do with it. Yeah, she just says she's going to use it on everyone in town, but that's kind of the only way that would work. Or she could blast it into rain clouds like the end of uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Or like the end of the Snow Queen season when the Snow Queen had the rain of glass that made everyone evil. Oh yeah, right? Okay. So back in the Charming Loft, the Charmings remember that they have a child. Um, And we see baby Neil in his crib, which I bring up only because we see that he has a mobile that is sheep. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Emma... Although baby Emma had a mobile that was glass unicorns and baby Neil's mobile is wooden sheep. So I think they're like, well, we really fucked up with Emma. Let's just do the opposite. What's the opposite of a glass unicorn? Okay, so going by the logic set forth in this episode, baby Neil's going to be a savior too, right? Yeah, well, going by the logic of this show, baby Neil's going to be a savior. He is also the product of true love. The truest love, as they sometimes say. Mm, Okay. When it comes to... Every, <laughs> every couple in Once Upon a Time who is not David and Mary Margaret must be so annoyed all the time. Like, fuck you. You think your relationship is better than our relationship? 
it does kind of devalue true love when literally every other couple in the show has it. They're all fairy tale characters. They get true love. That's what fairy tale characters do. I'm just reminded of the one bit in Angel where Angel's talking about why he can't date Cordelia. And he's like, because the moment of true happiness and Wesley pulls him aside and he's like, you know how rare one moment of true happiness is? Most of us get by being happy enough. Well, I have to say, until that speech from Wesley, those of us with our minds in the gutter thought a moment of perfect happiness was just euphemism for ejaculation. I mean, in in Buffy it was. Right? Like... But now we're on an adult show, so now it actually means true happiness, which is really problematic on Angel because you can have true happiness without dating someone. I feel like the idea that, and I feel like the better Angel's life gets, the more nervous I get watching that show. I'm like, no! Well, that's what that's what Wesley should have been worried about during the whole Connor thing, because he was really into being Mr. Dad. Yeah! Maybe that's what, oh, okay, that explains Wesley's actions in that season. Yeah. Even if it's not said out loud. I will point out that Belle and Rumpelstiltskin, although they do love each other, do not have true love. And I like that. They almost did at one point. Right, and then Rumpel held back. He wouldn't let himself feel that for her. And that's a constant albatross in their relationship that stops true love from ever really being possible. Which you would think would be the same thing with Angel, where the possibility of him losing his soul would always be the one thing that's weighing in the back of his mind, stopping him from ever being truly happy. In season five, he does say that that's why he can be in a relationship, because he'll always be too worried about that to be perfectly happy. Even though prior to that, he was perfectly happy when he had sex with Cordelia, except he didn't really have sex with Cordelia. It was part of a dream sequence designed to bring out Angelus, which was like the worst idea ever. Okay, this isn't Welcome to the City of Angels. Would an angel podcast be Welcome to the City of Angels? Yeah, probably. I mean, it could be Welcome to L.A., but that seems misleading. Welcome to Wolfram and Hart? And then we only talk about villains? I think Welcome to the City of Angels would be the... Okay. Well, Welcome to Pylea. Okay, but if we did Welcome to Pylea, we could only talk about that one, like, four-part episode. Welcome to Pylea and Adjacent Dimensions. You know there's that podcast where they just watch grown-ups, like, every single week and then talk about it? Yes. We could do a podcast where we just watch those four episodes of Angel on a loop over and over again talking about them. Someone brought up, I was, I was, I've been going through Angel recently, and I've been reading this blog, Mark Watches, going along with it. Uh-huh. Oh, he's watching Angel now? Yeah. Okay. And he, he talks about how in uh, the episode where Cordelia becomes half-demon, uh-huh. like before she decides to do that, when she's in the alternate reality, where... Uh, Angel got the visions instead of... Where she never met Angel in L.A. and he got the visions instead of her. And she got a TV show? Yeah. There's no Fred. Oh, yeah. Cordelia was never in a place where she'd fall through the portal. And therefore, Angel and the others never went to Pylea and saved Fred. Yeah. And he's like, it's a really subtle, dark note in that episode that there's just no Fred. I love that episode, honestly. It's so good. So... Anyway, back to the thing we're actually supposed to be talking about. Which is actually good. Usually when we have these long tangents, we are like, oh, it's because we don't want to talk about this episode. But I think we're just really, really, like, worked up. And it's making us talk about other things we love. So David and Mary Margaret are leaving Baby Neil with Granny. Shouldn't he... Sure, why not? Shouldn't he go with, like, Emma? Emma's gonna... Have oh, you not right. been paying attention to this season? Emma is going to die. 
Wow, how, how uh, I guess Henry's going to get the baby? So anyway, Mary Margaret's like, look, we have to do this. We have to give the evil queen our hearts. We have to save the people of this town. Look, it, it, it's, it's all about the greater good. It's what we do. We're royals. Noblesse oblige. And then because we're charmings, it'll all work out. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And she quotes the thing that, uh, the she quotes the thing Blue said earlier in the episode, which is, as long as someone believes in you, you're never alone. And then he's... Which I don't think applies to this situation. Nope, not at all. But the point is, they both realize that when they got there, this was your life flashback when they grabbed the sapling. They both remembered the sequence where the woodcutter nearly killed them, and they didn't think the other was there. And they're like, huh, so I guess that's actually our first meeting? So presumably they explain to each other what we are about to see in the flashback, which is David still trying to open the lock on the murder... Caravan. Yeah, carriage. Yeah. Murder murder... van. Yeah, murder van. And then the woodcutter returns and just runs full force at David, who uses a rock to defend himself. Okay, so the woodcutter announces himself by throwing an axe at a David, which buries itself in the door of the caravan, giving David an axe. Look, this is why throwing weapons are dumb. If you don't hit your mark the first time, you don't have a weapon anymore, and now the person you're fighting does. And you think he would know better, given that that's exactly what happened in the earlier fight scene with Blue and Snow. Hey, he has an aesthetic and he sticks to it, and also he has multiple axes. He throws the other axe and it knocks a hole into the van door, but doesn't r- reveal anything quite yet. It just gives Mary Margaret an armhole so she can reach through the... Uh... So she can reach through the door and stop him from axing David in the face. Yeah, I don't feel like she would be at a good angle to to hold on to that axe, but she is, and she does, and David hits him in the solar plexus so that he goes down. He goes down hard! Well, that's, no, David stabs him with a broken axe handle in the stomach. Oh, okay, yeah. He still goes down pretty hard. Well, he is super dead at this point. Yeah, but I, yes, but gut wounds take a long time to kill you. This guy dies, like, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary Margaret doesn't kill. So we have been told. So we have been told that one scene in the first season where she kills a whole bunch of dudes excluded. I think she should at least get partial credit for this murder. She definitely assisted in this murder. She held him in place so David could stab him. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely. Yeah. This goes on the ledger. Definitely. So, but, Dave, but David's killed people before this. Yeah, yeah, of course. So David starts to open the carriage compartment, and Snow is like, wait, no, don't. If you see my face, it will be terrible for you. Yes, I am a wanted princess on the run. I don't think she actually says princess. She doesn't say princess, but I mean, this is all... She says the evil queen wants me dead, I'm in exile, I'm escaping, and... For your own protection, you can't see my face. Okay, this is fine because we wanted to have them meet before they meet, and this is a fine way to do it, but in retrospect, David should definitely have known who she was, especially with some of the things she's going to say later. And also, this isn't really going to protect David. We saw the evil queen going around killing people who she thought might have seen Snow. The fact that David is in the same vicinity of her, he's... he's Puts him in just as much danger as if he actually sees her face. Point. 
And then the camera does this thing where we are looking at the, where we're looking at the, where we're looking at the carriage on a side view so that we can see Mary Margaret inside the carriage and we can see David outside of the carriage. And it looks like those wedding photos that people do where they're standing on either side of a door, like holding hands, but the groom doesn't want to see the bride before the wedding because if that happens, then the wedding is cursed. No, no, it's not the whole universe. It's just the wedding. The wedding is cursed, and then you have to sacrifice someone to, like, remove the stain before you can get married. I think that's the rule. That's what bridesmaids are for. And groomsmen. Dark. Dark. Yeah, that's why you never agree to be in anyone's wedding party. But, yes, so we have a split screen with the door, so... It's a weirdly cute scene of the two of them sort of interacting yeah yes as you said snow white tells david that she's on the run and that she's just trying to survive and david like talks her up and is like hey you seem pretty badass since you helped me kill a guy from inside a locked carriage so i think you're gonna be okay yeah you seem pretty resourceful not like me all i can do is kill people and sell family farms because i've got a family farm i need to sell uh, you know, because I'm a really shitty shepherd. And Snow White's like, oh, here, take all of my gold that I was going to use to get out of town. I've just now decided to become a bandit instead and steal from royal carriages. See, this is the point where David should have put it together later. Yes, that is the point where she's like, she specifically references the dude who ripped her off at the beginning of the episode. She's like, this one guy stole my mom's jewelry. Uh, this one guy got my mom's jewelry at a killer price, so I know he's got cash to burn. I'm going to rob him. Oh, okay. When she says there's a pretty corrupt nobleman who rides his carriage through my territory a lot, I actually didn't realize she was talking about the guy from the beginning of this episode. I thought she meant James. No, no, that's going to... Okay, I thought she was, I thought it was setting up when she steals from James, but no, it, you're right, she's just gonna rob that guy. Okay, okay. But she has a thing where she's like, knowing you believe in me means that I'm not alone, you've given me the strength to become a bandit. And David's like, okay. And he gets a, he gets a look at her arm and he's like, pretty hot arm. Oh yeah, those are some hot ass hands. I like hands. They do They do a lingering thing where they touch when she reaches through the hole to hand him the coins. And that's when we see the spark of their true love fall to the ground and the sapling pops up. Which, by the way... You is mean the small tree? The baby tree. By the way, this baby tree is in the middle of the road, so I don't know how it survived, but I guess it's magic. Also, why didn't it grow into a regular tree at any point? It stays a baby tree forever because of love, Max love god so back in storybrook the evil queen has gathered the assembled townsfolk and boy they aren't even trying to put them in costumes anymore are they well everybody's living in the modern age they're like whatever i'm just gonna wear whatever i want to wear so it's like in wreck it ralph 2 when all of the princesses realize that they can wear sweatpants if they want and they do although i do like fancy hat possible pirate guy yeah, he's out of focus, so it's hard to actually give him MVP extra, but okay. Yeah. He is wearing a cool pirate hat and a very colorful scarf. I um, I like to think that he's not a pirate, that he's just some guy, and he was like, oh, I can wear whatever I want. I want to wear a pirate hat, and then he bought it from a pirate. I like to think that he was just somebody who was living in Storybrooke, and he's like, wait a second, 
All of these newcomers have given me license to dress however the fuck I want. I'm glad he's been given license, but dude, live your life however you want, no matter how other people are dressed. He's like those guys who are just waiting for the apocalypse so they can start uh, having mohawks and wearing S&M gear in day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah. So Zelina pulls Belle to the side. By the way, um, Zelina is so much taller than Belle. It's not a thing you think about, but when they're standing next to each other, I'm like, Belle, you're tiny. Yes, Zelina pulls Belle to the side and she's like, so you know that your husband's banging the evil queen and Belle's like, whatever. I like. Yeah, e- Belle's like, I don't care about that. And Zelina's like, oh wait, I'm sorry, I meant your husband is banging the evil queen so that the evil queen will give him shears that can sever your child's destiny. Care about that? Which, yeah. So, Emma and Regina get ready to co-blast the evil queen. Emma shows Regina that her hand is steady. She is ready to take down the evil queen, like, with her girlfriend. Yeah, they're going to team up. But they don't need to because David and Mary Margaret show up because their love is more powerful than anything the evil queen can throw at them. And then the evil queen performs an epic eye roll. (laughs) Really? David and Mary Margaret, really? I could throw a cruise liner at you. Is your love more powerful than that? Yeah, so then it's really weird, but Regina has to come and take the spell off of them so that the evil queen can rip out their hearts. Like, they ask her to do it, and she does it. It's a weird moment because logistically that's how it has to go down, but... Theoretically, couldn't the evil queen just take the spell off them? She is literally the same person as Regina. Well, that helps my theory that Regina has to be doing something to kind of maintain it continuously. Mm. So so that would mean that it had to be Regina who took it off. So Regina removes it, the two of them take hands, walk up to uh, walk up to the evil queen who's rubbing her hands together and licking her lips. She is so excited to rip out their hearts. And by the way, when she does rip out their hearts, I want to say good on Once Upon a Time for having their hearts have a decent amount of darkness in them. Yeah, it's a good touch. And my God, Lana Priya's facial expressions when she does it, it's... Amazing. Wow. Once she has the hearts in the hand, she's like, oh. She, she, She is just savoring this moment. She talks about how much she has dreamt of crushing their hearts and she would wake up and just feel the grit of dead heart on her hand. Mm, It's a lot. But she's like, but you know what? Death is kind of too good for you. Plus, I know there's an afterlife now and that kind of ruins this for me. Right? Your pain needs to be like my pain. Unending. Yeah, she tells Snow White she's going to give her what Snow White gave her. She is going to make her feel what it's like to be alone. And she tells her that she has come up with the best curse ever. She shoves their hearts back into their bodies, and then Snow immediately passes out with the sleeping curse. Yep. She goes from conscious to blonk right on the ground. And I love this sort of way Lana is leaning in the evil queen dress over her. Yeah, well, you can't lean. There's only one way you can lean when you're wearing a corset, so that's the way she has to lean. But she also needs to be, like, hovering over her, so that's what she does. So she bamps uh, Mary Margaret's 
sleeping cursed body away because David's like, whatever, a sleeping curse? We break those all the time. Who gives a shit? What's funny is this curse would be just as devastating if David found out what it did right now, which he would if she hadn't bamfed the body away, but she wanted the dramatic buildup. So she does her what hands and what out of the scene. Then we cut to Belle speaking some truth to Rumple. This is such a cathartic scene, and I'm every time Belle has a moment like this, I get really disappointed because, you know... Belle could have been this character all the time. Well, it's just she goes back on it so often. She gets a bunch of these. So, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with Family Guy. A bit. There's a scene, I watched it when it first came out. And then I fell off it pretty soon after it came back. The one where Quagmire does the takedown of Brian? No. There's a scene. Uh, I, I found out about this through something on the internet. I saw it just posted in isolation and I thought it was really cool. So I watched the episode. In gift form? Yes. Okay. But there's a scene where Meg just tears into every member of the family. Oh, good. Because, yeah, that's one of the things that really turns me and I know a lot of people off of Family Guy. Yeah, and she just, she deconstructs every single character. And she's like, you all treat me like garbage because you're all horribly broken people. And you don't have to address it if you project your insecurities onto me and then take me down. And when I'm old enough to get out of here, I'm never going to see any of you again. I'm I'm just leaving forever. I can't be in this environment. You're all toxic, awful people, and you've ground me to this broken person, and I don't need to take it anymore. See, you're making me want to have that catharsis now. It's a great speech. And then I made the mistake of watching the episode. Oh, no. Where Brian convinces her to stay because the family will fall apart without her. And she's Uh. like, oh, they need me if they don't have this punching bag then they're all gonna destroy each other that's so gross and abusive yeah oh so i kind of wish i had just kept that moment in isolation but so that's kind of what you're saying about this episode where it's so amazing to have bell give rumple what for and of course she's gonna go back on it yeah but for the moment let's just enjoy it she tells she tells rumple that well what we said last week um, maybe instead of cutting off his baby's future, he could just not be an asshole. Like, just don't be a shitty dude. Just be a dad. Seriously. And he's like, oh, the things I do, they're they are driven by the love of my son. And she's like, no, 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 you don't get to do that anymore. You used that to justify everything you did with Neil. And you know what happened? Neil left you and Neil died. And Belle actually says, if you were like, truly evil like the evil queen that would be one thing it would you would just be a fun villain we could fight but instead you're like this mealy-mouthed man who's wandering around saying oh but i love you and then just destroying people and you know what speaking of abuse i like this because the cultural narrative of an abusive relationship is very much the evil queen someone who's just evil all the time over the top cartoonish And that makes it hard because in actual abusive situations, the abuser is charismatic and generally projects vulnerability onto their victims. But also will behave kindly 
a lot of the time so that you're like, well, he's not abusive. He just does an abusive thing. And then, you know, things have to hit a real breaking point for you to realize that, no, that's part of the pattern. That's part of the behavior. But she she makes it very clear. She's like, you can't be someone who's around our child. She tells him he will never see his child. And then she leaves. You will never see this child because you can't accept that all of the bad things that happen in your life are because of you and the choices you've made. And then she leaves and Rumpel immediately turns to the camera and he's like, Zelina. Because, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. proves her point right off the bat. Right? So, meanwhile, David is trying to find where Mary Margaret has been bamfed to. And the first place he checks is Mary Margaret's bed. And she's not there. And I was like, David, of course she's not there. But he'd feel really stupid if they looked a bunch of different places and then she was in the bed. Yeah, I guess you have to check there first. And, of course, she is in the second most obvious place. In fact, I'd say this is the first most obvious place with the bed being the second most obvious place, which is inside the glass coffin in the middle of the woods where, you know, she is okay so we get a bunch of tight shots of david's truck driving as he goes to that one place in the woods do you think main license plates actually have vacation land as their tag i think that there's at least one variation of main license plates that have that god that's weird i mean i can't talk i'm from the nutmeg state am i from the nutmeg state i forget what connecticut's thing is i don't know what i'll assume that that's what connecticut's thing is what's florida's uh, Sunshine State. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah. So, David finds Mary Margaret in a glass coffin slash log. Yes, well, it's it's the one. It's the one from season one. It's the very first thing we ever saw. Well, it's it's slightly different. Remember, uh, that was a full glass coffin. Regina broke it down and oh. had it in the mine. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So, Regina helpfully points out, like, a kiss is not going to work because... The evil queen seemed pretty sure that this was a good curse, and if it could be broken by a kiss, that would be really dumb. But, as you said, David would feel pretty stupid if he didn't try. I love the cinematography here. There's a lot of tight shots of people's eyes. And lips. It's very... uh, It's... I, I don't know how to describe it. Piecemeal. It's very, like... It's taking a kiss and breaking it down to its fundamental aspects... It, decon- it deconstructs the breaking of the curse. Like, most curses are broken in wide shots so that you can see the effect of the ring of true love spraying out from the kiss. But this one is done in a very tight shot so that we can see every part of the true love's kiss. It's intimate in a way this show isn't normally. Yes. And we see the split second where it works and Mary Margaret opens her eyes and wakes up. Oh. This is also cutting between him kissing her in the present and the first time he broke uh, the curse with True Love's Kiss. In the very first scene of this show. With the snow and like the red and yeah, God, it's just so pretty. They just did such a good job with the cinematography in this episode. And because we're in so tight and close and slow, we see the moment where it works and Mary Margaret wakes up and for a second... They think everything is fine, and then David passes out. Because they share the same heart, the curse can't be stopped. The true love's kiss just brings it from one of them to the other. Yes, well, one of them is awake, the other will be asleep. And, 
honest to God, this is the best David and Mary Margaret plotline we've had since, I think, season one. I think this is the best David and Mary Margaret plotline ever because their true love is their downfall. Remember how we talked about how true love started to be used as a crutch? It was like, oh, have you tried true love's kiss? And it's like, yeah, true love's kiss is the one thing that can break this curse, but it's just going to... It's just going to pass it to the other one over and over again. And there's no chance of someone else breaking it because you're each other's true love. The thing that made the broken heart thing work is what is now cursing you. God. And also, this sets up such a good dynamic for them in the next couple of episodes. Like, I really love the thing. I love the things they build out of this plot point. I love it so much that I'm not going to point out the super obvious thing. They could have Emma kiss them because Emma's their kid, and as we've seen, True Love's kiss can be paternal. Yes. I guess guess I'm going to point it out. But I don't care. I love this plot so much. It's really great. So that'll do it for this episode. This is like... I don't, I don't know. Why wasn't Marty Knox, Marty Knox? Jane Espenson. <laughs> Why wasn't Jane Espenson writing more episodes of this? This was like. I, I think because she's one of the executive producers, she doesn't have time to write a lot of episodes. Nah, but I forgot how good this show can be. I know, I know. It's, oh, it's great. It's so good. Like genuinely good not good in like a campy you know it's fun because it's so over the top way yeah this is genuinely an actual good episode of television so i think that that's it for the episode there's not really a fashion corner i mean yeah no one really had any outfits that stood out in any particular way they're doing a lot of the uh short dress with the long coat thing this Short dress with a long jacket. Yes. Re- uh, Regina had one and Zelina's been, it's been basically Zelina's default outfit. Yeah. So. Um. So I wanted to start doing recommendations and I was specifically inspired to do this when we were watching the Hyde episodes and I was reading The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter. Mm-hmm. It made me think, God, when these episodes are bad, I really want to recommend something good in their place that's the same kind of vibe. But this episode was so good. Let's recommend something terrible that has the same vibe. Oh, Maybe uh, something that we watched last night. Oh, oh, are you talking about Albion the Enchanted Stallion? I'm talking about Albion the Enchanted Stallion. Okay, first things first. Netflix does this thing where they create different covers for different people based on their interests. So it tricks you into watching something by making it look totally different sometimes they're interesting like there's a romance cover for riverdale and there's a thriller cover for riverdale so based on what you watch more of they show you a different cover Mm -hmm. and i noticed watching it that my covers even if they're not a major part of the story always make a cover with the female lead because apparently that's what i'm interested in did you have the warrior woman yeah Yeah, so the cover for me of Albion, the Enchanted Horse, the Enchanted Stallion, I'm sorry, Albion, the Enchanted Stallion, was Jennifer Morrison in, like, badass warrior makeup. And I was like, let's watch this! And she's in one scene. She's in one scene where she is playing... It's the best scene, and she's the best part, but there's only one scene. She's the goddess of neutrality. 
she yes she's the abbess she's some people are just born with a heart full of neutrality but they have her playing like she's this very powerful magical uh balance creator in this mystical land of albion which this girl rides a magical horse to get to because this is literally every tween book uh this is every tween book intended for girls merged into one narrative. Here's the thing. We watched two hours of this movie. I mean, we watched the whole movie. And I'm still not sure if it's a satire or not. Yeah, because it is literally every tween girl cliche. It's And, and John Cleese is in it being like this Baron Harkonian character who is way too dark for the tone of the rest of the movie. Yeah, like, this is a movie about a girl who finds a magic horse that takes her to a magic country that she has to save from cartoonish over-the-top villains, and they're, like, bumbling cartoonish over-the-top villains, except for John Cleese, who is their king, and he orders, like, who is their king who has people skinned for his own amusement. And is, like, full-on body horror, uh, but then played by John Cleese. Yeah, it's John Cleese, but he's dressed like the bondage businessman from Mad Max. Here's the thing. I wouldn't recommend this movie for pleasure, but I recommend watching it with a close friend who also enjoys bad movies so that for the rest of your life, you can look at each other and be like, oh my God, remember Albion? Well, it starts- What the fuck was happening with that movie? It starts off like a horse movie. Like there's this girl and she's poor, but she works on a horse ranch and she takes care of rich girls' horses and the rich girls are mean to her. And then she finds a magic horse and also her dad is sick and she has to take care of him. Okay, uh, I do have to say, though, it has the greatest character I've ever seen, which is a guy whose family has been guardians of this scepter of truth for generations, and as a result, it's permanently affected their DNA, and now they are incapable of lying. Yes, the prince who can't lie is, like, the best character in the movie. Yes. I do like the unkillable guy, too. He's okay. He's a little broadly humored. But, oh, oh, I looked it up. Because the director plays a character in it. Doesn't the director play the guy who can't die? No. The director is the Scottish warrior woman. Okay. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that she uh, cast the hottest actor in the movie to go rat hole the rat hole with her. Ha! Yes. Okay, sorry. When you said Scottish warrior woman before, I didn't know you meant the redheaded woman who is clearly a highlands warrior i thought you meant jennifer morrison in her split personality scene where one of them is wearing woad oh yes you mean the care so not only is it a misleading picture because jennifer morrison is in only one scene it's only one part of her because jennifer morrison's character has split herself into multiple different characters so she can see every situation from every possible angle right so there's like her warrior part and her intellectual part and her in love part her super horny part i was calling it her in love part but yes it's that's her generous lounging in a red silk dress and dreaming of a guy coming to bang her part uh so it's a terrible movie but honest to god i thought it was also a lot of fun it might be a parody. We saw the whole movie and I'm still not sure. Also, it has too high... Like, the budget's too high for it to be a, like, straight-to-TV movie. I was Googling this movie after we watched it because I wanted more information about it. And I found very little online about it. So, I don't know. Like, 
If anybody knows anything about the production of Albion, colon, The Enchanted Horse, please let us know what's going on with this movie. It's too high budget to be, like, a straight-to-DVD movie, probably, but it's also too low budget to be an actual movie. Also, Deborah Messing is in it. Deborah Messing is in it. John Cleese. I know John Cleese will be in anything, but... Will he? Actually, I don't know if he's that guy. Now, the year on Netflix said 2016, so I was like, there's no way Jennifer Morrison would have done this in, in 2016 if it was this cheap, straight-to-DVD movie, but maybe it sat on the shelf for a long time? Maybe. Yeah, but Deborah Messing is the queen of the underground Scottish people. Oh my god, okay. So there are two races that are at war, and then... The neutral lady, this is the backstory, the, the neutral lady is like, tell you what, how about if you just give the invading army half of your land? Which, first of all, is a terrible solution, but they agree to it for some reason. And, and, then, then, and then the invading army's like, okay, we're going to take the top half. See, I think what would have been a hilarious solution would have been if the abbess had then, like, teleported them ten feet into the air and they'd all fallen down and broken their legs. That would have been great. But no, all the Scottish people had to move underground. Uh, so that was Albion. Colon, yeah. the Enchanted Horse. The Stallion? The Enchanted Stallion! Also, the Stallion's not named Abby- Albion. Albion's the name of the country. That is correct. It is a misleading title. Also, I think it's supposed to be the first movie in a series. That's really how it comes off, but I don't think it's going to be. Okay, so from my Googling, it does appear to be a series of books, but I couldn't really find anyone talking about the books either. Yeah, I went on Rotten Tomatoes and this had no reviews. Same! Weird. So I think that'll about do it. Yeah, so next week we're going to talk about the Once Upon a Time episode, I'll Be Your Mirror. Yes. No, no, it's good. Okay. I'll, I'm willing to give it credit. I mean, I mean, we'll see what I say after we've watched it next week. But I remember loving at least the opening sequence. Mm. That's the bit where we get what the new dynamic is now that they're sharing a sleeping curse. That is correct. So that's it for this week. Our show is partially listener supported. If you would like to be one of those supporters, you could head over to our website, www.ilovetelevisionzines, and click on our Patreon link. We'd like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Sam, Cassidy, Alex, Alicia, and Ryan. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can also rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. If you want to talk about this episode, head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash I Love Television Zines. We can also be contacted at I Love TV Zines on Twitter or at I Love Television Zines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this has been Welcome to Storybook.